Welcome back to Cato's Constitution Day. My name is Walter Olson. I'm a senior fellow at Cato's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. And you have made it through the day to the fun panel. Uh, tra traditionally our most popular, traditionally our most fun, uh, in which you get to hear about the upcoming Supreme Court term and uh, hear from some of the uh, top experts that we could line up. Now, uh, the order in which our three panelists will speak varies slightly from the program that you might have seen, and it's reverse alphabetical order. I'm going to uh, introduce the three of them uh, all at once and then uh, take a seat. You might even hear from me later on about one of the cases that the court will be hearing that I've been involved with for Cato. But we're gonna start with Ilya Shapiro, um, Ilya, for us, will always be the one who got away. Um, he is uh, at the Manhattan Institute, where I spent so long in my career. Uh, he is now the Director of Constitutional Studies and a senior fellow. Uh, he, however, uh, probably all of you know him for the many years that he spent at the Cato Institute, culminating in succeeding Roger Pallon as being Director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. He was publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review and published 11 volumes of that. He has testified before. Okay, you were, you were responsible one way or another for uh, 11 volumes. And how many uh, amicus briefs have any of you filed before the Supreme Court? I'll bet it's quite a few, but I'll bet it hasn't been more than 500. That, it, that is the extraordinary uh, accomplishment and distinction uh, that Ilya has here. Uh, he is associated with many uh, other nonprofit institutions, uh, and he is the author uh, of Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations in the Politics of America's Highest Court uh, uh, out in 2020, and a book that continues to do very well. And he's on TV all the time. Um, now, Amy Mason Saharia, is with Williams and Connolly, where she focuses her practice on appellate litigation, uh, including high stakes appeals in the US Supreme Court. Uh, and she has argued in the US Supreme Court, uh, filed do dozens of briefs uh, in the Supreme Court and appellate courts nationwide. Uh, from 2010 to 2011, uh, Amy Saharia, uh, clerk for Justice Soto Sonia Sotomayor on the US Supreme Court. Uh, Amy Howe, and I'm I'm going to try not to just use first names a lot this afternoon. Uh, Amy Howe is known to a great many of you for her work at SCOTUS blog, uh, where she served as editor and reporter for many years and continues to contribute articles that I read all the time there. Uh, she also argues before the Supreme Court and other tribunals. Uh, she served as counsel in over two dozen merits cases at the Supreme Court and argued two cases there. Uh, she has co-taught uh, courses in Supreme Court litigation at both Stanford Law School and Harvard Law School. And uh, she holds a law degree from right here in DC at Georgetown University. So uh, Ilya, start us off, please. Great, uh, thanks very much, Wally. It's wonderful to be back here. I think this is my first time in the building since I left uh, in January, but I'll always uh, have a special place in my heart because I actually got married at Cato and had the reception right here uh, in this room. Um, uh, uh, Trevor, where are you? Is Trevor not in the room right now? Well, he made a joke at his opening remarks uh, about his four volumes that he's now edited, which is great. That means he's done over a third of 
what I did. So even if his longevity at Cato uh, beats mine, uh, I hope I can still remain the Federer to his uh, Nadal or Djokovic be, having won the most uh, Wimbledons and hopefully put out the, the record for editing the, the, the review that, that Trevor won't uh, reach. Uh, and finally, uh, Wally, uh, you, you, you missed out, you, you left out a, um, uh, uh, an interesting part of my biography, you know, my, my uh, recent uh, stint uh, in higher education, uh, and I realized that I had to, uh, to to maintain credibility with this audience. I had to leave Georgetown, uh, and so and, and and resume a more uh, uh, legitimate uh, uh, position um, with Manhattan. So anyway, uh, look, last term, as you've heard all day, uh, was uh, this is not a case uh, a term where you know I do a lot of Supreme Court reviews, and some years you kind of have to put lipstick on a pig and try to make sexy some bankruptcy or ERISA or tax cases or something. Didn't have to do that uh, last term. Uh, and um, you know, some uh, on the left especially are concerned that uh, the, there's, a, there's a reversal of the Warren Court's uh, civil rights uh, gains of the 60s, but really what we're seeing is a stripping of Warren Burger's gaudy legal wallpaper of the 1970s. These are glasses from last night's Competitive Enterprise Institute Gala. Always a good time. It had a 70s uh, theme. But really, that's, I think, what's going on. And that leads me into the first case that I'm covering, um, uh, which is the, the Harvard and UNC affirmative action case. Um, because if I'm right that the court is really reversing the excesses of uh, the Warren, uh, the, the Burger Court, not the Warren Court, well then, the next precedent from the 70s in the crosshairs is Bakke versus Regents, which in 1979 uh, established our modern jurisprudence regarding affirmative action, regarding racial preferences in higher education. And this was an unusual case in that uh, four justices said that you cannot use race in, uh, as a criterion for, for college admissions. Four justices says, absolutely, you can use race however you like to remedy past wrongs. And one justice, uh, Lewis Powell, the deciding vote, said, well, neither of these is right. Uh, I think diversity, or you know, but Powell says diversity is a, a compelling government interest, but race can only be one of many factors to achieve this uh, compelling interest in uh, educational diversity. And so on that one justice's opinion was this whole edifice that is now born the rotten fruit of DEI uh, bureaucracies uh, was born. Uh, and so now, 40, more than 40 years later from Baki, we have a challenge to um, uh, the oldest public and oldest private university in the country, Harvard and UNC, using race. Uh, how? Well, we don't know. That's part of the problem. There's this black box with a so-called holistic review. But it sure seems like based on the statistics and based on how much harder it is, uh, depending on your race, to, to, to get in at the equivalent level of, um, uh, of resume, uh, whether GPA or uh, SATs or uh, extracurriculars and, and what have you, and especially among Asian Americans who are the plaintiffs, uh, or at least the, the, the theory on which this challenge is brought by an organization called Students for Fair uh, Admissions. Uh, and they say that it's, uh, you know, in Harvard, for example, that uh, the, the intangible score, the personality score of, of Asian American applicants was downgraded on purpose so that they could 
uh, be rejected, even if they're more qualified uh, than others, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so the question is, after the Supreme Court in 2003 expanded upon that one vote and had five votes to allow the consideration of race as one among many non-determinative factors, but not strict quotas or, or other mechanical point systems, um, uh, should, will the court uh, overturn uh, that kind of grutter allowance? And uh, I think it's good that after initially taking up the Harvard case, the court added the UNC case because all of the previous modern jurisprudence, starting with Bakke and UC Davis, then Grutter and Gratz with Michigan, and then the UT Austin cases involved public institutions. Now, under current jurisprudence, uh, there is no difference between public institutions and private ones that take federal educational funding under, under Title VI. Uh, and I don't think this case is going to differentiate. This is not about the treatment of you know, private institutions taking public funds versus the direct constitutional application of the 14th Amendment. Uh, but um, uh, nevertheless, uh, it's a four-square, full-on challenge uh, to uh, the use of race in, in admissions and indeed potentially to uh, the idea of educational diversity being a compelling interest that, uh, that allows the use of race in, in uh, which in other contexts may not be. Uh, and this is one area where, you know, if you had to bet, you would think that the Harvard case would end up six to two with the new Justice Jackson recused and the UNC case ending up six to three. This is not an area where Chief Justice Roberts, who's seen as the most gettable vote for progressives, uh, is squishy. Uh, he, after all, was the one who, uh, in a 2007 school busing case, famously wrote, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And in his very first term on the court, he said, it's a sordid business, this divvying us up uh, by race. So still possible that there could be some sort of compromise, middle ground uh, to uh, you know, pillory Harvard, but salvage the diversity rationale for the racialist shenanigans that we see all across higher education. Uh, but you know, depending on what Justice Kavanaugh and Barrett do, but I wouldn't bet on that. The more likely thing is that if they overturn Roe, I think uh, they're equally likely to overturn uh, Baki. Now, uh, moving from the most important or the highest profile case of the term to the very first case of the term. That first Monday in October, the, course, uh, the court takes up Sackett versus EPA. If that rings a bell, it's because there was a Sackett versus EPA 10 years ago. That's how long some of these cases last. Uh, this is a property rights slash environmental regulation case under the Clean Water Act involving an Idaho couple who's been prohibited from building a home on their property uh, because their lot allegedly contains wetlands that qualify as navigable waters under the Clean Water Act. Now the problem is the standard for what uh, navigable waters means under the Clean Water Act is unclear and again depends on one justice from a fractured uh, Supreme Court opinion in 2006, a case called Rapanos, uh, where Justice Kennedy did, a, did his Kennedy-esque thing and you know waved his hands and it was good enough for that, but didn't give much guidance to lower courts. Um, uh, you know, 10 years ago, the Supreme Court unanimously agreed that the Sacketts could bring their lawsuit, could challenge uh, certain administrative compliance orders that stopped the construction, uh, stopped the development uh, subject to fines of $75,000 a day. They could challenge that before the EPA took them to court. Um, well, for a decade later, they've still been going through the court system over, and it's all stuck on this issue of, of the definition of navigable water. I won't bore you with uh, the way that the EPA has issued various guidance documents trying to either comply with or sidestep this uh, convoluted test. 
Um, but uh, presumably the court will now take the opportunity to adopt the test from the four justice plurality, which would allow wetlands to be regulated uh, only when they themselves have a continuous surface water connection to regulated water. So if you have a puddle on your property and it rains heavily and has a larger puddle, that would not suffice. Uh, you actually have to be navigable water, actually has to be navigable water. That's presumably uh, what is going to happen here. Um, moving from, from, from water to, to pigs, um, in 2018, California voters approved Proposition 12 a far-reaching law to prevent animal cruelty, requiring all pork, veal, and eggs in the states uh, to, to satisfy uh, how the animals were, were raised, how they were confined, et cetera. Um, now, you know, California has regulations in lots of industry areas that you know, effectively set the standard nationwide. If you're a car manufacturer, you're not gonna have one type of fuel emissions for cars sold in California and another kind for the rest of the country. It sort of sets uh, the standard. Uh, well, this, this dynamic is particularly egregious for the pork industry, which has very little presence in the state. Only 0.2% of um, uh, the country's breeding sows are in California. Uh, and moreover, the industry is highly integrated in interstate, so you can have cuts that are, you know, pigs raised in Illinois, slaughtered in uh, North Carolina, distributed somewhere else, packaged, you know, all over the, the place. And you don't know where any given uh, sausage, uh, not just how it's made, but where it's come from, where it comes from. Uh, and the problem is, of course, that uh, the Constitution gives Congress the power to regulate interstate commerce, not the states. But Congress hasn't, doesn't have any sort of regulatory scheme for, for this kind of, that's relevant uh, to this case. And so um, uh, this raises the issue of the negative or dormant Commerce Clause, which, trust me, is no sleepy area of law. Uh, and it tends to cut across ideological lines. In fact, Justices Thomas and Gorsuch are, are among the most hostile to claims of uh, the, the invocation of the negative commerce clause to go against state uh, regulations or extraterritorial uh, applications. You know, the, again, uh, with my theme of my, my 70s glasses, uh, the dormant commerce clause governing standard is this multi-factor balancing test from 1971, the Pike case, which again, I won't go through, it's you know, undue burden this, and uh, it's, it's unclear, and that's the problem. So I think whoever wins here, uh, and it's very hard to predict, I do predict firmly that there will be a new clearer standard for evaluating uh, negative uh, Commerce Clause claims. And so Pike's half-century balancing test, which has allowed plenty of lawyers to bring home the bacon, uh, will be uh, retired and replaced by something perhaps that will be uh, a more clear regulation. Uh, and finally, the last case I want to talk about uh, is, um, uh, let's, let's, let's call it Masterpiece Cake Shop Revisited, uh, but without the cake. Uh, that is, um, uh, uh, a website designer in Colorado, like Masterpiece Cake Shop was, remember the cake uh, baker that didn't want to make a, a custom cake for a same-sex wedding, uh, you know, was he a free spe speech martyr or a half-baked bigot? We don't know. The Supreme Court ruled 7-2 to that Colorado had displayed anti-religious bias and sort of remanded it and didn't decide any of the, the pithy issues in, in, in what I believe was Justice Kennedy's very last uh, case before he retired. Well, here we have a website designer, so there's no debate over whether there's First Amendment-protected expressive activity. This isn't cake baking or floristry. This is website design. 
uh, and uh, ran afoul, or at least uh, before running afoul, filed a declaratory judgment suit uh, uh, about you know, not wanting to be fined, not wanting to be compelled to create uh, these websites uh, to celebrate uh, same-sex weddings, with which uh, the Lori Smith, the designer, um, uh, had, had religious beliefs uh, against. Uh, and the Tenth Circuit, curiously, and I think the only example of this kind of reasoning in this type of, of case, said that uh, the market for any service provider is that particular service provider. That is, uh, Lori Smith here creates a unique custom product. So the market is not, you know, it's irrelevant that there are other website designers available, what their prices are, how, you know, how close they are, uh, things like that, because every uh, business owner is its own market. It's uh, uh, remarkable, really. I, you know, I'll tell you, even if uh, uh, Lori Smith loses here, which I think is unlikely, I think this court is likely to rule for her, uh, but if she loses, it will not be on the Tenth Circuit's rationale, which is just, uh, just, just, just bonkers. But to be clear, the court will only hear the case on the issue of whether compelling someone to speak uh, to comply with anti-discrimination law violates the free speech clause. There are some other issues of you know, uh, free exercise or employment division versus Smith, which I'm sure some of you know about, but not at issue here, simply about compelling speech in the context of uh, anti-discrimination laws. Now, the court could slice and dice and find another narrow way to avoid resolving the thorny constitutional questions, uh, but uh, again, I don't think, uh, I, I think almost certainly it'll be a win for Smith, and, and it will not be uh, uh, a Tenth Circuit-style analysis. So I think I'll end it there, and, and let me just say that, that uh, I, for one, am here for, for a reversal of the uh, Burger Court. Okay. Thank, thank you, Ilya. Uh, now we'll hear from uh, Amy Saharia. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I wish I had some cool props, but I don't, <laughs> nor do I have any pig puns to offer today. Um, but I do have to offer some thoughts on three cases coming up this term. One blockbuster, one maybe blockbuster and one probably not blockbuster. Uh, let me start with the blockbuster. That's uh, Moore v. Harper. This is the case in which the Supreme Court is going to tell us whether the independent state legislature theory is just a theory or actually a doctrine of constitutional law. Uh, the case involves the, uh, the constitutional elections clause. That clause provides that the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. The case comes out of North Carolina. Uh, the North Carolina Republican-dominated legislature uh, drew the districts for the 2022 federal election. Uh, the state Supreme Court, which is dominated by Democrats, then um, vacated that redrawing as unconstitutional under the state constitution on the grounds that political gerrymandering violates the state constitution. And the Republican legislators who are defending the redistricting say, under the elections clause, the legislature has the exclusive authority to, uh, to regulate the time, place, and manner of federal elections. Uh, state courts, you have no authority to, uh, to interfere with that um, activity, and the state constitution just has no application when state legislatures are drawing districts or, um, or otherwise regulating federal elections. Um, that, that is the theory. That's the, the independent state legislature theory. Uh, the Supreme Court has, not, has never adopted that theory, but it has been floating around for a while. Justice Rehnquist 
uh, floated this theory, um, this reading of the elections clause back at the time of Bush v. Gore. Uh, the, the petitioners came to the Supreme Court, said, please stay the decision below um, so that our original districts can be in place for the election. And the Supreme Court denied um, that request by a six to three vote. Justice Alito wrote the dissenting opinion for himself, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas, saying, uh, this is really important and I think they're gonna win. We're gonna adopt this theory. Uh, we should um, stay the decision below. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh wrote a concurring opinion saying, this is a really important issue, but it's just too close to the, to the election for us to interfere and that's why he voted to deny the stay. So no stay, but then the court grants the petition. Um, and so uh, the case is gonna be heard in the fall, uh, maybe December. And, um, and, and what's gonna happen? Well, I'm not an expert on this doctrine. In fact, I think we have an expert on the doctrine who's speaking after this panel. Um, but I venture to say that if four justices voted to grant the petition, and we know there are four, the, the four stage, um, Pretty good prediction that they, they think they have a fifth vote already, um, that vote likely being Justice Barrett. So I think if you were betting, you would bet we're gonna um, have this doctrine um, after this term, but it's not totally clear what it's gonna look like. Um, there's a, a, a very aggressive reading of the doctrine which would hold that, this, that state courts simply have no authority um, ever to, um, to pass judgment on, uh, on state regulation of federal elections. Um, state constitution has no role whatsoever to play. Um, there's a, a kind of a narrower reading that Justice Alito floated in his dissenting opinion at the stay stage, which is when what the legislature is doing is really something that feels like legislating and not just traditional judicial stuff, but in this case, redrawing districts on the ground that they were gerrymandered, that's too much. And that's when this, this clause has some role to play. So, so I don't know what, what, we're gonna, what it's gonna look like, but, but I think there's a good chance that the court is going to um, adopt this doctrine and more. So that's, that's the big blockbuster and, and it has big consequences for, for federal elections, not state elections, that this doctrine applies only to, to, to federal elections. Um, the second case is uh, Mallory versus Norfolk Southern. Um, this is the court's latest foray into the sexy field of personal jurisdiction. Um, the case involves um, a plaintiff who is a former employee of Norfolk Southern. Um, importantly, he lives in Virginia. Um, he claims that Norfolk Southern injured him in Virginia and Ohio, but he brought this suit in Pennsylvania. And that's kind of the crux of the case. Um, Norfolk Southern is not incorporated in Pennsylvania. It doesn't, it's not headquartered in Pennsylvania. So under the kind of traditional uh, personal jurisdiction rules that the Supreme Court has announced in Goodyear and Daimler, Norfolk Southern is not subject to personal, general personal jurisdiction in Pennsylvania. But Pennsylvania has long um, required corporations to register to do business in the state and its long arm statute provides that if you register to do business in the state, you are subject to general personal jurisdiction in the state. So the, court the, the Pennsylvania courts have construed that to mean you consent. Once you register to do business in Pennsylvania, you consent to jurisdiction in all kinds of cases, whether or not they have any tie to Pennsylvania. 
The question is whether the due process clause prohibits a state from requiring a corporation to consent to personal jurisdiction to do business in the state. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court said yes, the due process clause does prohibit states from doing that. Um, this, the Supreme Court has taken a very narrow view of general jurisdiction for corporations in recent years. Um, if they were to rule for the plaintiff in this case, it would essentially undo all of those recent cases and allow states um, a fairly easy mechanism to, to unrun those cases um, and you know, hail companies into their states to, uh, on any kind of claim, whether or not it has any connection to the state. Um, in, in the wake of those recent Supreme Court cases, and most notably Daimler, this issue really came to the forefront because a bunch of states had this kind of consent principle. And I think at that time, it was quite obvious to me that the Supreme Court would never allow states to do this. Um, it's a little less obvious to me now. I still think that um, the company will win, uh, but it's not as clear as it once was. This is a different court. Um, last year in the Ford case, Justice Gorsuch wrote um, a quite interesting concurring opinion, which was joined by Justice Thomas, kind of calling on the court to um, reconsider its personal jurisdiction jurisprudence, calling on the court to kind of go back to an originalist view of what personal jurisdiction was before the time of International Shoe, which is the kind of canonical case in this area. Um, and um, calling into question the fact that seemingly it's harder to sue corporations than individuals and asking whether that makes a lot of sense. So I'm really just curious to see what he is going to do in this case in particular. I still think it's likely that the company will win, but it's not as, as much of a slam dunk as I think it would have been um, in the prior court. Um, third case I'll touch on is United States versus Texas. Uh, this is a challenge by Texas and Louisiana to uh, federal policy guidelines um, prioritizing which undocumented immigrants should be arrested and deported since the United States can't deport all 11 million of them. Um, the government promulgated some guidelines. Um, Texas and Louisiana sued in district court in Texas claiming that these guidelines violate federal law. A different coalition of states led by Arizona filed in Ohio District Court. Um, the district court in this case held that Texas and Louisiana have standing to challenge these guidelines and that the guidelines violate federal law. Um, and the Fifth Circuit uh, denied to stay the district court's nationwide injunction. At the same time, the Ohio case reaches up to the Sixth Circuit and in an opinion by Judge Sutton, the Sixth Circuit went the other way Judge Sutton held that the states had no standing to challenge these guidelines and also ruled against them on the merits. The Solicitor General went to the court um, on an emergency basis, said, please lift the district court's injunction in Texas, and the Supreme Court denied that um, request by a 5-4 decision with no reasoning. Um, interestingly, the four dissenters were Justice Sotomayor, Kagan, um, and Jackson, it was Justice Jackson's first recorded vote on the court, and Justice Barrett was the fourth dissenter, which is not a normal coalition um, on, uh, of 5-4. Um, but uh, although the court denied the stay, it construed the motion as a pre-judgment cert petition and granted it, meaning the, court, the case went immediately from the district court in Texas 
to the Supreme Court on the merits and jumped over the Fifth Circuit. Um, there's, there's several issues in the case because we're here to talk about the Constitution. I'll just highlight the constitutional issue, which is whether Texas and Louisiana have standing to challenge these kind of enforcement guidelines. Um, the theory the district court accepted was that um, the enforcement of these guidelines will result in uh, more undocumented non-citizens kind of out on the streets in Texas and Louisiana, and that will cause them to incur more money and it could lead to more crime. Um, the Solicitor General uh, challenges that in its merits brief before the court, um, and it kind of offers the court an array of different uh, ways it could hold there's no standing. It could hold that when a state sues a federal government, it needs to allege direct injury and not this kind of indirect injury. It could hold that as a kind of general matter, plaintiffs can't challenge enforcement decisions because those are dependent on decisions of third parties. Um, and it just kind of takes on the district court's reasoning on its own and says this is kind of speculative assumptions about what these enforcement guidelines will lead to. Um, I think Judge Sutton's opinion is quite good um, and offers the court a pretty good roadmap to hold there's no standing here, um, and it kind of offers the court some pretty narrow grounds on which it could resolve the case. Um, so whether this turns out to kind of have broader implications or narrower implications, I think, remains to be seen. Thank you. Amy Saria, and we'll hear now from Amy Howe. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I'm not sure I've ever been on a panel with another Amy before, so this is very exciting. Another um, uh, Ilya before. You have? <laughs> um, I'm going to talk about two cases. One is a, a blockbuster, one is a little bit less hot, lower profile. And then I'm going to look ahead at the September 28th long conference when the justices will meet to map out new cases for the upcoming term. Um, I'm going to start with a case called Reed versus Getz, which involves the statute of limitations and DNA testing. In 2009, in a case called District Attorney's Office versus Osborne, the Supreme Court held that if an inmate has a right under state law to prove his innocence with new DNA evidence, then those procedures for the testing must be fundamentally fair. Two years later, in a case called Skinner versus Switzer, the court held that inmates can pursue a federal civil rights claim to obtain DNA testing of crime scene evidence. They said they have to show that the state law has denied them their right to due process. So the question before the court in Reed versus Getz is when the statute of limitations to bring that federal civil rights claim starts to run. Does it run when the trial, state trial court rejects your request for DNA testing, or does it run later after the state court appeals process has run its course? Um, the question comes to the court in the case of a Texas inmate, Rodney Reed, who was convicted and sentenced to death in, 1990, uh, in 1998 for the 1996 rape and murder of Stacy Stites. All of this time, Reed has maintained his innocence. He admits that he was in a relationship with Stites, and he says, suggests that someone else, perhaps her fiance, who was a police officer, may have ultimately been responsible for her rape and murder. So after his federal post-conviction claims had run their course, he tried to have DNA testing conducted on some items that were found in and around Stites' body and her truck, which she often drove. The state trial court turned him down in 2014. The state 
the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, which is the highest state court for criminal cases in Texas, um, turned him down in April of 2017 and then denied rehearing a couple of months later. So Reed went to court in August of 2019, which would have been timely under the two-year statute of limitations, which is borrowed from Texas law for two years from when the state criminal court denied rehearing, but too late for anything else. So he went to federal trial court, the court threw him out, and the Fifth Circuit ruled that he had brought his civil rights claim too late, that he should have brought it uh, within two years of the trial court's denial of his request in 2014. So he came to the Supreme Court asking the justices to weigh in and asking them to adopt the 11th Circuit's ruling, uh, the 11th Circuit's position, which provides that the statute of limitations for DNA testing only begins to run when the, all of the state court litigation has run its course, including any appeals. And he says that this state criminal court ruling is the authoritative construction of the state's DNA testing laws, and it didn't exist until then. Um, there is, in terms of sort of why this matters, uh, not just to Reed, but to others in the criminal defense community, there's an amicus brief in his case from a police accountability group that is arguing in favor of the more generous interpretation of the statute of limitations. They say that post-conviction claims for DNA testing are often the only remedy available to people convicted as a result of police mistakes. The Texas District Attorney says that the trial court's 2014 order was an authoritative construction of the statute, but at the very least, even if you go further to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, that it was the decision turning him down um, in April of 2017 that actually interpreted the statute, not the order, the simple order denying rehearing. He also argue, they also argue that the court has no right, to, no power to hear the case. The second case I want to discuss is one with which I think many of you will, will likely be familiar. It's a case called Merrill versus Milligan involving Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which bars election practices that result in a denial or abridgment of the right to vote based on race or color. And so under the statute, you establish a violation of Section 2 by showing that under the totality of the circumstances, that elections are not equally open to participation by minorities. The Supreme Court in a case called Thornburg versus now, is it, I'm gonna ask my panelists, is it Jingles? Jingles, Jingles okay, because I listened to it on Oyez and if it was wrong, I was gonna have to blame Warren Burger. So, um, <laughs> outlined a test for vote dilution. There were three conditions for plaintiffs in section two cases to satisfy before you then move on to look at the totality of the circumstances. And I'm not gonna outline all three of them here, but the, the focus in this case is on the first one which is whether the minority group can demonstrate that it's sufficiently large and geographically compact to constitute a majority in a single member district. So that this case, Merrill versus Milligan, is a challenge to the state redistricting map for uh, the House of Representatives that Alabama enacted in 2020. Remember that every time we have a census, we need to draw a new map. So Alabama drew a new map for the House of Representatives. Alabama has seven districts. Blacks, uh, black residents of Alabama are 27% of the population, and the state drew one majority minority district. So the challengers went to federal court. They argue that this plan, and this is uh, voting terminology, cracks 
uh, packs black voters into one district, district known as District 7, and then cracks the rest of them into multiple districts, diluting their vote. They say that the state could have, should have drawn another majority black district and that its failure to do so violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Um, the lower courts agreed with the challengers. They agreed that the new map likely violates the Voting Rights Act. They put the map on hold and ordered the state to draw a new map. So the state went to the Supreme Court this winter asking them to put the, trial, the, the lower court's order on hold. The Supreme Court, by a vote of five to four, granted that request, put the, put the order that would have required the new maps on hold, and set the case for oral argument in October. Um, so that means that Alabama went forward in the May 2022 primaries with the new map, will go forward in the November 2022 general elections with the new map. Uh, the four justices yield, uh, the, the four justice group in the dissent yielded two separate opinions that staked out different point, different positions on the merits, which give us a good hint as to where this case could be going. Justice Kagan wrote an opinion that was joined by Justices Breyer and Sotomayor, and she said, look, the district court properly applied section two here. I'm not sure why we're putting this case on hold. The Chief Justice John Roberts did not join that opinion. He wrote his own. He too would have put the, uh, would not have granted the request to put the district court's order on hold. He would have allowed the elections to go forward uh, would have required the elections to go forward using new maps. He said, because it's consistent with current voting rights laws. But he said, there is uncertainty about what the proper standard is in a vote dilution claim. And so I would allow these elections to go forward, but I would also hear oral argument in this dispute over the maps. Justice Brett Kavanaugh fired a, filed a concurring opinion, and he said, in addition to the questions surrounding section two, uh, I'm also voting to put this uh, order on hold because of a principle with which many of you I expect are familiar, known as the Purcell principle, the idea that federal courts should not interfere in state elections too close to the election. Justice Kagan fired back in her dissent. She said it's four months until the May 2022 primaries. It's nine months until the general election. This is not too close to the election. Alabama frames the argument before the Supreme Court as whether or not the Voting Rights Act requires Alabama to intentionally create a second majority black district. And there, there are a couple of different arguments. One of them, a key question under section two, it says, is whether or not the political processes are open to all. And to show that a district is not equally open, the plaintiffs would have to show that the districts diverge from race neutral principles that from a neutrally drawn map. And then the second one is focused on the jingles factor. It's the first jingles factor, the idea that plaintiffs can show that they can draw a geographically compact map. And they say essentially for the first jingles factor, plaintiffs can't draw their alternative maps by prioritizing race. You need to show that you can draw this second majority minority district using race neutral principles. A related constitutional argument that they make is that requiring the state to prioritize race when it's drawing its maps is unconstitutional. The challengers and are supported by the Biden administration. They stress that the state is very polarized in its voting 
and they say that Alabama's argument would drastically upend the court's cases interpreting Section 2 would have a significant effect on majority representation across the country. They say that by requiring plaintiffs to show that a state's plan is not neutrally drawn, the state is effectively imposing an intent requirement that Congress rejected in 1982. And then talking for just a couple of minutes about some of the cases on the Long Conference. The Long Conference is kind of reporters' worst nightmare these days because there are thousands of petitions that are before the justices. And it used to be that every time the court had a conference, you'd have to try and figure out what the most likely cases were. But these days, in almost all of the other conferences besides the Long Conference, the court has very helpfully adopted a practice of only granting review in cases that they have already considered at at least one conference. Um, and there are a couple of these that are, are repeat players that have actually been around since the summer, since before the court took its summer recess. Um, but one of the really interesting ones that I'm following is a case called Gonzalez versus Google. Um, Section 230 of the, communication, the Communications Decency Act provides that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher of or speaker of information provided by another information content provider. Congress passed this law in 1996 after a New York court held an internet service provider liable for de defamatory messages on its message board. Two years ago, in a statement regarding the denial of certiorari, Justice Clarence Thomas suggested that maybe it was time to revisit Section 230. He said the court should consider whether the text of this increasingly important statute aligns with the current state of immunity enjoyed by internet platforms. So the question that the justices have been asked to decide in the Gonzalez case is whether or not Section 230 protects internet platforms when their algorithms actually target users and recommend content. The lawsuit was filed by the father of a woman who was killed uh, in an ISIS attack in a Paris bistro in 2015. And he says that Google assisted and aided ISIS's, ISIS's recruitment by recommending YouTube videos, ISIS videos to its users through its algorithms. The Ninth Circuit ruled that Section 230 does in fact protect these recommendations as long as an internet service provider is treating all of the content on its website similarly. But it said, we feel like we're bound by another Ninth Circuit case on this topic. And if we were to, to decide it with a clean slate, we would in fact rule that Section 230 would not protect a provider's content recommendations. There's a, I know you talked about uh, the American Hospital Association versus Becerra case already today. There is a trio of cases uh, all carried over from the previous term involving Chevron, the Chevron Doctrine. Uh, one is called Bert Buffington versus McDonough, the case of an Air Force veteran who is seeking disability benefits. Um, the Federal Circuit, which hears veterans' appeals, he says should have provided uh, should have applied a presumption in favor of veterans before finding the laws, in this case, ambiguous. He said, but if you decide that it's ambiguous, you should overrule Chevron. And then there are two cases, um, 
Apachian versus Garland and gun owners versus Garland that are challenges to machine gun regulations. They do not ask the court to overrule Chevron directly. The questions in those cases is whether the courts should defer to Chevron when the federal government has affirmatively disavowed Chevron deference and then whether or not Chevron should apply to statutes like these with criminal law applications. Last term, the, the Supreme Court in the American Hospital Association case um, turned down an invitation to overrule Chevron. They you know, essentially ignored it. Um, and so I'm really interested to see what they do with these petitions, either at the petition stage or on the merits. And then uh, you know, we're, we're about to hear a lot about term limits at the Supreme Court, which I'm really looking forward to. There was a Michigan case challenging the constitutionality of term limits for Michigan lawmakers. In a 1992 amendment to the Michigan State Constitution, uh, voters enacted two sets of term limits for the state's legislature. For members of the state's House of Representatives, you can serve no more than three two-year terms for a total of six years. Uh, if you're in the Senate, you can serve no more than two four-year terms for a total of eight years. So a group of former state legislators went to the federal court arguing that these term limits violate their First Amendment right to freedom of association uh, and individual expression. The lower courts disagreed with them, and so now it is coming soon to a Supreme Court near us. Well, thank you to all of our panelists. I'm going to take a couple of minutes to talk about a case that hasn't been mentioned yet, uh, which uh, Cato and I, and for that matter, Ilya, have been involved with because Ilya was involved uh, back when he was with Cato last fall, and that is um, Holland versus Burkine on the application of the Indian Child Welfare Act and its constitutionality. And it's a topic that has long troubled the Supreme Court, long interested the uh, Cato Institute for its uh, con conflict of rights. The Indian Child Welfare Act, as many of you know, was passed by Congress, which was angry at some of the ways in which state governments had um, uh, trampled on the rights of uh, parents in Indian tribes, uh, taking away their children without good cause. And it assigns a um, great deal of power to Indian tribes over uh, questions of child custody. Um, and a lot of that is not terribly controversial, but there are edge cases particularly involving adoption in which uh, it has become tremendously controversial. The late Justice Angeline Scalia uh, once said in an interview that a uh, case called Holyfield, uh, an ICWA case, was the most troubling case he had ever had to rule on in his tenure on the court because the plain meaning of the statute so clearly favored the tribe and its rights, uh, and yet the individuals before him, including not just the infant, but also an Indian couple who wanted the adoption to go through, but could not make it go through because ICWA had taken away their own rights, although they were themselves tribal members and awarded the rights to their tribe instead. But in that case, Scalia, as he was known to do, upheld the letter of the law at the expense of what he thought was fairness. Uh, the issues did not go away, in part because the, uh, there is this tremendous tension between the general course of Supreme Court rulings on race, which are that government may hardly ever uh, uh, properly take race into account in adjudicating individual rights, and its general course of ruling on Indian law, in which it is said that because of Congress's plenary power over Indian law, 
that it may always uh, appropriately take into account Indian status. Um, and of course, what makes these in conflict is that largely, though not entirely, uh, eligibility for membership in an Indian tribe is a racial matter. It has to do, in most cases, with blood quantum. That's not the way it works with all tribes, but it is a, a very typical way in which it works. And so you have had the Supreme Court declaring what are possibly two contradictory things uh, in statutes like ICWA, in which individual rights are made to hinge on not just tribal membership, but in the case of these infants, eligibility for tribal membership in the case of infants who have never lived on, in Indian country or in tribal relations and whose parents may not either. Well, the Supreme Court last dealt with this in 2013 in a case called Adoptive Couple versus Baby Girl, anonymized on both sides of the V. And uh, <clears throat> what they did, you may not be totally surprised to learn, was to duct the constitutional issues using the always handy doctrine of constitutional avoidance, uh, which says that if you can twist yourself into a pretzel, um, uh, to avoid taking on a, a possible unconstitutionality by uh, interpreting other things just right, uh, it's okay to do that. And uh, Justice Alito writing for the majority um, played kind of fast and loose with some of the uh, statutory language, at least so said Justice Sotomayor in her dissent, and I thought she really had a point, which is that Alito was not taking the most obvious reading of some of the statutory terms, but he was arranging things so as to conjure away the constitutional difficulties by finding a statutory reading that would let the, um, the, the, the family or, or the baby, or call it what you will, uh, win. Well, 10 years will have gone by probably by the time the, the court um, decides uh, Holland versus Burkin. And some of you have already guessed that one really big thing that has happened in those 10 years is that Justice Neil Gorsuch has joined the court, uh, with, who has thought about Indian law with a, a depth uh, that uh, is seldom matched in justices of the modern era, who, whose rulings in McGurdon and elsewhere have been uh, tremendously influential, and everyone will be, I think, waiting to see um, uh, how he transforms, because he is likely to transform uh, the court's thinking on Indian law in this area. So uh, that's not the only case that we've heard mentioned that Cato was involved in. Um, in this case, Cato joined a brief filed by the Goldwater Institute of Arizona and the Texas Public Policy Foundation. So with that, I will turn to our panelists and ask if they have any reaction to each other's comments or cases. One thought occurred to me as Amy was talking about reporters' difficulty with the long conferences. Uh, I don't know if you all considered making a certain uh, pool of your own uh, to divvy up the, the various cases. Uh, I think. I guess because you're competing with each other for scoops, I guess it's hard to do it. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think it may have sort of inertia. I think probably what happens is that everyone has their own approach, both in terms of what cases they think are likely to be taken and then how you would approach them, but it's an interesting idea. Well, I think we can all accept that SCOTUS blog is the paper of record for, for these sorts of things. So petitions to watch, it's where to go. Sure. As a practitioner, we always want our petition to get on petitions to watch, that's for sure. Is there an antitrust issue? No, I won't raise that. Um, I guess, can I ask Ilya a question? I'm just like, if you could play out a little bit more what you think a middle ground in the Harvard and UNC cases might look like. Uh, well, since Harvard and UNC to a diff in a different way, this is one way in which you could potentially see different opinions, 
uh, is such a black box in how they use race. You could see a, a vacating the lower court opinion uh, for factual development of exactly how Harvard uses race. Um, that would be a way to, to punt the eventual overruling uh, of Bakke, or at least Grutter, into Justice O'Connor's 25-year end of that shot clock from Grutter. She said, you know, 25 years from now, we'll might not be able to justify this extra constitutional uh, deviation. Well, we're 19 years uh, uh, into that. Um, that's uh, perhaps the most obvious way. Yeah, I mean, the 25-year the sunset is really fascinating to me because it was 2003. My daughter was born in 2003, and she's now a sophomore in college. So, you know, I wonder, is this, I don't think there's any such thing as sort of throwaway lines in Supreme Court opinions, but how seriously do you think the justices will take that? I don't think it, anybody on either side of the question takes it seriously. I have one thought, which was just listening to the various presentations that just struck me how many of the cases that we're talking about first came to the court on the emergency docket. Um, two of the ones that I discussed did, one of Amy's did. And one thing that we started to see last year and, and that I think continue to see is the court be more creative and how it deals with this deluge of cases coming on the emergency docket. Obviously, it's um, received a lot of criticism in recent years about how it resolves those cases. And I think we, we saw it respond to that criticism implicitly last year by um, taking cases from that docket and moving them to the merits docket um, on expedited briefing, for instance, with some of the vaccine cases. And now with the case that I talked about involving the challenge to the uh, immigration guidelines, uh, having the court deny the stay, but then take the case basically from the Fifth Circuit and move it up directly. It's another kind of creative way the court might be thinking about dealing with some of these challenges. I, I think it's a real challenge for the court to deal with this just deluge of cases. Uh, that's an interesting wrinkle, the difference between the emergency and the regular docket. And I think that um, difference makes its appearance on, um, well, uh, some have called it the 333 court now, right? The three Democratic appointed justices, kind of Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas on the right, and the other three in the center right or middle or something. You don't see that with the main docket. Um, whether you look statistically, whether you look at the top cases, occasionally Roberts, you know, concurs only in the judgment as in Dobbs, but you don't see a 333. On the emergency docket, you tend to see more of that, you know, most recently with the Yeshiva case where Roberts and Kavanaugh joined the liberals uh, to, to vacate that, uh, that stay. Um, I don't know, you know, as we kind of go post-COVID where at least uh, a third or a half of the at least high-profile emergency docket cases came from, uh, I don't know if that tendency or narrative will continue. I mean, we are hopefully post-COVID, um, but then I think we're also coming up on election season, which is another uh, sweet spot for lots of emergency appeals. One of the petitions that I did not have time to talk about in any detail is actually a returnee from the shadow docket, the Biden versus Missouri petition, which about whether or not the Biden administration could impose a vaccine mandate for healthcare workers at federally funded facilities in the Supreme Court. As Amy said, like, you know, that was one of the complaints about the shadow docket for a long time. And then all of a sudden we saw, oh, actually they can fast track cases when they feel like it. And they fast tracked the case 
heard oral argument in January, issued a decision, a 5-4 decision in favor of the Biden administration relatively quickly. But now that case has gone back to the lower courts and is back up at the Supreme Court uh, in a petition that I think is scheduled for the long conference. Will we see them fast-tracking the appeal of uh, former President Trump's legal troubles in South Florida? I would say in some form or another, it would be hard to imagine that they wouldn't. Um, and I'll add, uh, if you are trying to keep up with the areas where court doctrine is changing, I would put religious liberty in that category, but perhaps election law comes too. Uh, it's really frustrating that um, it is these emergency cases, an emergency docket on, on COVID cases, uh, where you uh, have to turn because they simply aren't watched as much by the public, and we know the other problems. They aren't argued in as full dress a manner. But, um, tracing the development of religious liberty doctrine through the shadow docket cases, you really do see that uh, what a lawyer now has to predict is, is a significantly different than when they <laughs> last ruled on some of the issues in, in a full dress case. And if I can just add one more thing, you know, again, returning to the shadow docket, the yeshiva case, uh, which was kind of a roller coaster, I think will continue to be a roller coaster because initially uh, Justice Sotomayor put the lower court's order on hold and then referred it to the full court and we got some opinions a couple of years, a couple of days later. And apparently today, since I've been here, Yeshiva has announced that it is putting all of its student groups on hold for now. Mm. Wow. Mm. Okay. Um, we are now well, going to- you know, Of course, with religious liberty, Wally, uh, I don't think uh, any of the panels uh, covered this, but the, the praying coach case last term, Kennedy versus Bremerton, uh, where uh, Justice Gorsuch in his majority opinion announced, oh, by the way, we've long ago abandoned the Lemon versus Kurtzman test, another 70s throwback, right? Uh, and effectively said all the juice had been squeezed out of the lemon and we now throw away the rind. <sighs> okay. We're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to turn to general questions now, and they will come bo both from the live audience and from online. Let me say a word about asking a question. If you are one of our online uh, viewers or listeners, uh, you can join the conversation and submit questions uh, on the event webpage or on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. Use the hashtag uh, Cato, S-C-O-T-U-S, Cato Scotus. And uh, for those of you in person, we will have uh, a traveling microphone. Uh, when the microphone comes to you, uh, please speak, of course, clearly and directly into it so we can all hear the question, but also if you could announce your name and affiliation first. So uh, we have, yes, in back there, uh, first question. Uh, Evan Watkins. Uh, my question concerned the Google case in Section 230. Um, the way that you phrased the Ninth Circus decision, I want to make sure I understood this. Uh, so say, uh, however strict Google was being striking down limiting censoring videos against American conservatives, if they were not just as strict against, say, the Iranian government, then they would be potentially liable despite 230? Is that uh, the way that... Um, it worked out? The Ninth Circuit in this case held that Google could not be held liable um, for its recommendations as long as it was treating other recommendations similarly. It said, you know, but 
if it were up to us without this prior Ninth Circuit precedent, we would hold that, that Google could be held liable for its recommendations. Um, okay, more questions, sir. Um, Thank you, Dave Schneer, FME Law. Uh, this is for Ilya, known today also as Amy Shapiro. Um, <laughs> this, this question has to do with Dormant Commerce Clause. Uh, there are two ways I think this could go, and I'm wondering which direction you think it might. It could be that they'll simply get rid of the Pike test and narrow it to what Scalia wanted, uh, which had to do with uh, looking only for instances of discrimination by one state against another which has long been held the standard that's, that's applicable. The other is to go the way Justice Thomas has talked about it in terms of trying to put it on privileges and immunities and just get rid of Dormant Commerce Clause altogether. I'm wondering if you had some sense of how, how that would go. Well, uh, only Thomas and Gorsuch uh, have are you know, cheerleaders of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, although I think uh, this is more about privileges and immunities. Um, I think that's less likely. I think I think the Scalia route is more likely, um, but I don't know. I mean, there there could be the, again. This is very hard to predict because it crosses uh, logical lines. Um, the the statutory preemption cases are are also hard to analyze uh, and 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 predict. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, state. What about if there's evidence of not discrimination but wanting to? interfere with interstate commerce. You know, what, how do you deal with that? Because there is evidence of that in this case. And in fact, the way that California law operates is Golden State agents are sent all around the country to, you know, visit, inspect agricultural facilities. Uh, clear, you know, the intent and purpose and uh, obvious, uh, you know, consequence of this law is extraterritorial uh, action, uh, at least. So, I, you know, the, the only thing I'm confident in predicting is that they will replace Pike with, with something. Any other comments? I'm, I'm fascinated to see what the court does in that case. I just think that the justices' policy preferences are so in conflict with what they think about the Dermer Commerce Clause, and we were just subjected to a very strident lecture that we don't read things in the Constitution that are not there, and the Dermer Commerce Clause is not in the Constitution, so I'm just really interested to see how that sorts out. Uh, more questions? Uh, yes, our table there. Hello, Philip Bohai from AFSA, American Financial Services Association. I'd like to shift your attention for a moment to the Supreme Court confirmation process. So in the past, we've always had the uh, the theater of speeches regarding stare decisis and assertions about the importance of precedence. And I think that in the common understanding in, in the culture right now, Dobbs has kind of uh, maybe torn the veil away from that to some degree. I'd like to ask your thoughts regarding whether the next few Supreme Court confirmation efforts and, and processes will have a different set of conversations about uh, about precedent, about stare decisis, and about what the, the candidates may or may not do? Well, I'll go first since I wrote a book about judicial confirmation battles, uh, now available in an updated per paperback edition. So, um, Supreme Disorder. Uh, 
So this could go one of two ways, right? Uh, overturning Roe kind of ends, in a certain sense, the distortion that Roe caused. And we've only seen two justices consistent on stare decisis. Justice Thomas always votes to overturn when he thinks something's wrong. Justice Kagan never votes to overturn when, even when she thinks something's wrong. Um, the others have, you know, every which way. Not saying that they're unprincipled, but just they're not consistent in terms of stare decisis. Um, will the questions be, you know, more precise? I mean, the, the candidates know, the, the nominees know, they can't, you know, predict, uh, they can't, as, as Justice Ginsburg said, uh, no forecasts, no predictions, no hints. Um, and that's right, you know, you don't want to effectively have judges pre-committing to certain views in order to get confirmed, that's, that's, that's not good. Um, you know, senators can ask, um, but you know, the, the, the ultimate response won't be the same, so it, you know, it could be that it becomes less of an issue and we, you know, we talk about other things, um, especially you know, five years from now as the reality that you know, Dobbs is here to stay and um, you know, uh, I don't know what the, you know, if Baki's overruled this term, I don't know what the next big presidents are that, that people are going to focus on, but uh, it, it could indeed, as you say, ripping this veil off could have, you know, the acute political uh, uh, reaction now, but in the medium to long term diffuse uh, at least that aspect of the confirmation battles. I agree with a lot of that. I mean, I do think that so much of the stare decisis conversation was about Roe and Casey and that they have been overruled. And, you know, Justice Jackson, I, I don't know how long it, we've had Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett, and then Justice Jackson now since 2017. Um, I don't know when we're going to have the next com confirmation hearing. You know, I, I don't expect to have one anytime soon. And who knows what, as Ilya says, what the, the, the next thing is going to be. Is it going to be Obergefell? You know, is it going to be Griswold? Um, I'm going to push back a little bit on the, 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 the Ginsburg rule, the no hints, no forecasts. I mean, Justice Ginsburg in her confirmation hearing actually said a fair amount about her views on various positions. Um, I do wonder whether we will see more, as you, as, as you suggest, more targeted questions from the senators, more follow-up questions. You know, okay, so, you know, this case is settled precedent, but the Supreme Court can overrule set, settled precedent, you know, sort of playing out a little bit more or whether everything that has been said can be said on that topic by a nominee has already been said. Yeah, I've, I, it's hard for me to see a, a real change. I mean, the, the senators can, can ask more targeted questions, but I think the answers are still gonna be the same non-answers, and I don't see that changing. It's, it's hard for me to see senators' characters changing uh, or the interest group pressures on them, which uh, help determine their behavior. Okay, thank you. Um, in front, Ilya Soman. At the Ilya Soman, George Mason University, at the risk of contributing to Ilya confusion, I'm gonna ask a question that in the first instance, maybe to the other Ilya, but I'd be interested in anyone else's thoughts on a care to opine. Uh, Ilya, you said that in the uh, Harvard and UNC affirmative action case, there could be just an overruling of Grutter, which also have to be an overruling of the 
Fisher II case as well, uh, but there could also be a compromise. I was wondering, do you think it's possible that what they could say is that diversity is still a compelling state interest, at least in the higher education setting, that could justify racial preferences, but uh, we're going to impose really strict scrutiny on it. We're not going to defer in any way to the educational judgment of the university. We're going to require them to actually explain you know, how you determine which groups are underrepresented and what educational benefits they provide and, uh, and why Asian Americans are disfavored if they are and so on. But that could be a way that they could strike down the Harvard or the UNC programs or perhaps both, but also uh, not uh, eliminate two precedents. Uh, do you think that's a likely possibility? I think it's more likely that uh, Grutter and Fisher too will be overruled, uh, or I suppose there could be some other options besides those two. I think this is, uh, you know, you get the Amy, that goes to Amy's question about other potential compromises. She's getting the, the Ilya tag team here. Um, I, I think that is a possible compromise that they, uh, in effect, I don't know if it's overruling Fisher, but like taking Fisher one more seriously because it did seem like there were teeth in, you know, don't defer to uh, educational administrators and, and, and all of that. And then they sort of kind of got too tired by the time Fisher two came along and just, you know, let it slide. Um, you know, so, so Grutter in effect um, uh, uh, elaborated on Bakke and said, you know, you can use race as one of many factors for this diversity interest that Bakke established. Um, and Fisher one, I think, was supposed to put teeth into that. So it, it is possible that they, they don't overrule Grutter, but they say we really do have to scrutinize, which would, I think, entail uh, sending the case back for, uh, for more fact-finding, or maybe not. Maybe the record is just so overwhelmingly developed and the statistical inferences so strong and the, you know, that, that, that they can rule against Harvard without, uh, and UNC without uh, overturning Grutter. Uh, a, a more interesting or perhaps nuanced question is, would it be possible to overturn Grutter but not uh, Baki? And that I have a hard time seeing just because, uh, okay, so you know, Grutter got it wrong with one factor among many non-determinative, but diversity is still compelling. Well, what, what do you put in its place? I, I have a hard time seeing that. So I, I do think there could be some sort of muddled compromise, uh, but if Grutter goes, then I think Baki goes along with it. Um, more questions? Uh, yes, uh, Professor Amar. Akhil Amar. Um, here's another possible split decision. I'd love to hear all the panelists' thoughts and, and have the people in this room think about it because this is an organization that very much respects private choices. Why should the rules for affirmative action be the same for public universities and private, Roger Pilon is shaking and nodding his head, um, private universities. Maybe um, charities must act charitably and so we shouldn't allow, one could say, this goes back to Bob Jones, that, that private universities shouldn't be allowed to discriminate against historically underrepresented groups. One could take that position and yet say um, public Universities have to be colorblind, um, uh, the, the John Roberts approach, but private charitable organizations should be allowed to um, take race into account, not just for diversity, but for 
um, uh, remedies and all the rest if they're trying to improve the representation of historically underrepresented groups given um, history of exclusion in America. Why, why shouldn't that be a sensible approach and reinterpret Title VI? Could I add to that? <clears throat> Excuse me. That's Apparently exactly you're going the position, to. That's exactly the position we took in the um, re Army recruiter case. What was that's right, yeah, that's exactly the position we took there. And uh, though I can't quite speak for Cato, I will say that exactly the point being made here uh, has a, a lot of people at Cato who immediately begin nodding their head because uh, I see no reason myself why the Harvard case should turn out the same way as the University of North Carolina case. Uh, they could turn out completely differently and that might be the best resolution. What, they, is, they'd have to call what is the rationale for treating them the same? I actually don't. There's don't jurisprudence that says, uh, that imputes 14th Amendment standards into the strings attached to Title VI. But they would, they would have to call for further briefing on it, because that issue has not been briefed at all. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, we have time for maybe one more question. I see Professor Adler over at the end there. Uh, Jonathan Adler. Um, so I guess a follow-up on that. If the court was inclined to go in the direction of treating public and private universities differently for uh, purposes of affirmative action, doesn't the court then have to wrestle with the question of statutory stare decisis? Because part of the reason for that equivalence is not a, a constitutional holding, but a statutory holding as to what the meaning of uh, the Civil Rights Act is. And even though as a textual matter, one could argue that the court um, misinterpreted the statute. As a general matter, the court doesn't like to revisit or reconsider prior holdings as to the meaning of statutes. Good, Correct. Good, good, good point, and it was a, that was a fast enough question that if someone else has a lightning round uh, question, we have three minutes left. Uh, I don't see any. I'm just glad you didn't ask about the Clean Water Act, John, because I think I exhausted <laughs> my knowledge of it in my presentation. Okay. Um, I don't see any other questions, but um, let me just say, uh, with two minutes left to go, uh, please do not go anywhere. Do not rise from your seats. Um, this program will be followed immediately by the annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture. Um, they will be refreshing the stage for that, uh, but uh, there will not be a general break for coffee or anything. So please stay where you are. Thank you for your attention and thank you especially to our wonderful panel.